Part One, Book One of From the Foundation of the City, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lenny. From the Foundation of the City, Volume One by Titus Livius, translated by George Baker. Book One, Part One. It has been handed down to us as a certain fact that the Greeks, when they had taken Troy, treated the Trojans with the utmost severity, with the exception, however, of two of them, Aeneas and Antenor, towards whom they exercised none of the rights of conquest. This lenity they owed partly to an old connection of hospitality, and partly to their having been all along inclined to peace and to the restoration of Helen. These chiefs experienced afterwards great varieties of fortune. Antenor, being joined by a multitude of the Henicians who had been driven out of Paphagonia in a civil war, and having lost their king Pilimenes at Troy, were at a loss both for a settlement and a leader, came to the innermost bay of the Adriatic Sea, and expelling the Euganeans, who then inhabited the tract between the Alps and the sea, settled the Trojans and Henicians in the possession of the country. The place where they first landed is called Troy, and from thence the Trojan canton also has its name. The nation in general were called Henicians. Aeneas, driven from home by the same calamity, but conducted by the fates to an establishment of more importance, came first to Macedonia, thence in search of a settlement, he sailed to Sicily, and from Sicily proceeded with his fleet to the country of the Laurentians. Here also, to the spot where they landed, was given the name of Troy. Here the Trojans disembarked, and as, after wandering about for a great length of time, they had nothing left beside their ships and arms, they began to make prey of whatever they found in the country. On this, King Latinus and the Aborigines, who were then in possession of those lands, assembled hastily from the city and country in order to repel the violence of the strangers. Of what followed, there are two different accounts. Some writers say that Latinus, being overcome in battle, contracted an alliance, and afterwards an affinity with Aeneas. Others that when the armies were drawn up in order of battle, before the signal was given, Latinus, advancing in the front, invited the leader of the strangers to a conference, then inquired who they were, whence they came, what had induced them to leave their home, and with what design they had landed on the Laurentian coast, and that, when he was informed that the leader was Aeneas, the son of Anchises by Venus, and his followers Trojans, that they had made their escape from the flames of their native city and of their houses, and were in search of a settlement, in a place where they might build a town, being struck with admiration of that renowned people, and their chief, and of their spirit, prepared alike for war or peace, he gave him his right hand, and by that pledge assured him of his future friendship. A league was then struck between the leaders, and mutual salutations passed between the armies. Latinus entertained Aeneas in his palace, 
and there, in the presence of his household gods, added a domestic alliance to their public one, giving him his daughter in marriage. This event fully confirmed the hopes of the Trojans, that here at last they were to find an end of their wanderings, that here they would enjoy a fixed and permanent settlement. They built a town, which Aeneas called Lavinium, from the name of his wife. In a short time after, his new consort bore him a son, who was named by his parents Ascanius. The Aborigines, in conjunction with the Trojans, soon found themselves engaged in a war. Turnus, king of the Rutulians, to whom Lavinia had been affianced before the arrival of Aeneas, enraged at seeing a stranger preferred to him, declared war against both Aeneas and Latinus. A battle that ensued gave neither army reason to rejoice. The Rutulians were defeated, and the victorious Aborigines and Troyans lost their leader Latinus. Whereupon on, Turnus and the Rutulians, diffident of their strength, had recourse to the flourishing state of the Etrurians and their king Mezentius, who held his court at Seri, at that time an opulent city. He had been, from the beginning, not at all pleased at the foundation of the new city, and now began to think that the Trojan power was increasing to a degree inconsistent with the safety of the neighboring states, and therefore, without reluctance, concluded an alliance and joined his forces with those of the Rutulians. Aeneas, with the view of conciliating the affection of the Aborigines, that he might be the better able to oppose such formidable enemies, gave to both the nations under his rule the name of Latines, that all should not only be governed by the same laws, but have one common name. From thenceforth, the Aborigines yielded not to the Trojans in zeal and fidelity towards their king Aeneas. This disposition of the two nations, who coalesced daily with greater cordiality, inspired him with so much confidence that, notwithstanding Etruria was possessed of such great power, that it had filled with the fame of its prowess not only the land but the sea also, through the whole length of Italy, from the Alps to the Sicilian Strait, and although he might have remained within his fortifications, secure from any attack of the enemy, yet he led out his troops to the field. The battle that followed was, with respect to the Latines, their second, with respect to Aeneas, the last of his mortal acts. He, by whatever appellation the laws of gods and men require him to be called, is deposited on the bank of the river Numicus. The people gave him the title of Jupiter Indigis. His son Ascanius was as yet too young to assume the government. Nevertheless, his title to the sovereignty remained unimpeached until he arrived at maturity. During this interval, and under the regency of Lavinia, a woman of great capacity, the Latine state and the united subjects of the prince's father and grandfather continued firm in their allegiance. I am not without some doubts, for who can affirm with certainty, in a matter of such antiquity, whether this was the same Ascanius mentioned above, or one older than him, born of Creusa, wife to Aeneas, before the destruction of Troy, and who accompanied his father in his flight from thence, whom, being also called Ulysses, the Julian family claim as the founder of their name. 
This Ascanius, wheresoever, and of whatsoever mother born, certainly the son of Aeneas, finding the number of inhabitants in Lavinium too great, left that city, then in a flourishing and opulent state, considering the circumstances of those times, to his mother or stepmother, and built a new one on the Alban Mount, which, from its situation, being stretched along the hill, was called Alba Longa. Between the building of Lavinium and the transplanting the colony to Alba Longa, the interval was only about thirty years. Yet, so rapidly had this people increased in power, especially after the defeat of the Etrurians, that, not even on the death of Aeneas, nor afterwards, during the regency of a woman, and the first essays of a youthful reign, did either Mezentius and the Etrurians, or any other of the bordering nations, dare to attempt hostilities against them. A peace was agreed upon, in which it was stipulated that the river Albula, now called the Tiber, should be the boundary between the Etrurians and Latines. Ascanius's son, called Silvius, from his having by some accident been born in the woods, succeeded him in the kingdom. He begat Aeneas Silvius, who afterwards begat Latinus Silvius. This prince planted several colonies, who have obtained the name of ancient Latines. The surname of Silvius was henceforward given to all those who reigned at Alba. Of Latinus was born Alba, of Alba Attis, of Attis Capis, of Capis Capitus, of Capitus Tiberinus, who, being drowned in endeavouring to cross the river Albula, gave to that river the name so celebrated among his posterity. Agrippa, son of Tiberinus, reigned next, after Agrippa Romulus. Silvius received the kingdom from his father, and being struck by lightning, demised it to Aventinus, who, being buried on that hill which is now a part of the city of Rome, gave it his name. To him succeeded Procus, who had two sons, Numitor and Amulius. To Numitor, as being the firstborn, he bequeathed the ancient kingdom of the Silvian family. But force prevailed over both the will of their father and the respect due to priority of birth. Amulius dethroned his brother, took possession of the kingdom, and, adding crime to crime, put to death the male offspring of Numitor, making his daughter Rhea Silvia a vestal, under the specious pretense of doing her honour, but in fact to deprive her of all hope of issue, the vestals being obliged to vow perpetual virginity. But the fates, I suppose, demanded the founding of this great city, and the first establishment of an empire which is now in power next to the immortal gods. The vestal being deflowered by force, brought forth twins, and declared that the father of her doubtful offspring was Mars, either because she really thought so, or in hopes of extenuating the guilt of her transgression by imputing it to the act of a deity. But neither gods nor men screen her or her children from the king's cruelty. The priestess was loaded with chains and cast into prison, and the children were ordered to be thrown into the stream of the river. It happened providentially that the Tiber, overflowing its banks, formed itself into stagnant pools in such a manner as that the regular channel was everywhere inaccessible, 
and those who carry the infants suppose that they would be drowned in any water, however still. Wherefore, as if thereby fulfilling the king's order, they expose the boys in the nearest pool, where now stands the Rominal fig tree, which, it is said, was formerly called Romular. Those places were at that time wild deserts. A story prevails that the retiring flood having left on dry ground the trough, hitherto floating, in which they had been exposed, a thirsty she-wolf from the neighboring mountains directed her course to the cries of the children, and, stooping, presented her dugs to the infants, showing so much gentleness that the keeper of the king herds found her licking the boys with her tongue, and that this shepherd, whose name was Faustulus, carried them home to his wife Laurentia to be nursed. Some there are who think that this Laurentia, from her having been a prostitute, was by the shepherds called Lupa, and to this circumstance they ascribe the origin of this fabulous tale. Thus born, and thus educated, as soon as years supply them with strength, they led not an inactive life at the stables or among the cattle, but traversed the neighboring forests in hunting. Hence acquiring vigor both of body and mind, they soon began not only to withstand the wild beasts, but to attack robbers loaded with booty. The spoil thus acquired they divided with the shepherds, and, in company with these, the number of their young associates continually increased. They carried on both their business and their sports. It is said that even at that early period the sports of the Lupercal, which we still celebrate, were practiced on the Palatine Hill, and that this was called Palatium, from Palantium, a city of Arcadia, and afterwards the Palatine Hill, and that Evander, who was of that tribe of Arcadians, and had been many years before in possession of this part of the country, had instituted there this solemnity brought from Arcadia, in which young men were to run about naked, in sport and wantonness, in honor of Lycian Pan, whom the Romans afterward called Inus. While they were intent on the performance of these sports, the time of their celebration being generally known, the robbers, enraged at the loss of their booty, attacked them by surprise, having placed themselves in ambush. Romulus, making a vigorous defense, extricated himself, but they took Remus prisoner, delivered him up to King Amulius, and had the assurance to accuse them both of criminal misbehavior. The principal charge made against them was that they had made violent inroads on the lands of Numitor, and, with a band of youths which they had collected, plundered the country in a hostile manner. In consequence of this, Remus was given up to Numitor to be punished. From the very beginning, Faustulus had entertained hopes that the children whom he educated would prove to be descended of the royal blood, for he knew that the infants of Rhea had been exposed by order of the king, and that the time when he had taken them up corresponded exactly with that event. But he had resolved to avoid any hasty disclosure, unless some favorable conjuncture or necessity should require it. The necessity happened first, wherefore, constrained by his apprehensions, he imparted the affair to Romulus. It happened also that Numitor, while he had Remus in his custody, heard that the brothers were twins, and when he combined with this circumstance their age and their turn of mind, 
which gave no indication of a servile condition, he was struck with the idea of their being his grandchildren, and all his inquiries leading to the same conclusion, he was upon the point of acknowledging Remus. In consequence, a plot against the king was concerted between all the parties. Romulus, not going at the head of a band of youths, for he was unequal to an open attempt, but ordering the shepherds to come at a certain hour by different roads to the palace, forced his way to the king, and was supported by Remus, with another party procured from the house of Numitor. Thus they put the king to death. In the beginning of the tumult, Numitor, calling out that the city was assaulted by an enemy, and the palace attacked, had drawn away the Alban youth to the citadel, on pretense of securing it by an armed garrison, and, in a little time seeing the young men, after perpetrating the murder, coming towards him, with expressions of joy, he instantly called the people to an assembly, laid before them the iniquitous behavior of his brother towards himself, the birth of his grandchildren, how they were begotten, how educated, how discovered. Then, informed them of the death of the usurper, and that he had himself encouraged the design. The youths, at the same time advancing with their followers through the midst of the assembly, saluted their grandfather as king, on which the multitude, testifying their assent by universal acclamations, ratified to him the royal title and authority. When Numitor was thus reinstated in the sovereignty at Alba, Romulus and Remus were seized with a desire of building a city in the place where they had been exposed and educated. There were great numbers of Albans and Latines who could be spared for the purpose, and these were joined by a multitude of shepherds, so that, altogether, they formed such a numerous body as gave grounds to hope that Alba and Lavinium would be but small in comparison with the city which they were about to found. These views were interrupted by an evil, hereditary in their family, ambition for rule. Hence arose a shameful contest, though they had in the beginning rested their dispute on this amicable footing, that, as they were twins, and consequently no title to precedence could be derived from priority of birth, the gods, who were guardians of the place, should choose, by auguries, which of the two should give a name to the new city, and enjoy the government of it when built. Romulus chose the Palatine, Remus the Aventine Mount, as their consecrated stands to aid the auguries. We are told that the first omen appeared to Remus, consisting of six vultures, and that, after this had been proclaimed, twice that number showed themselves to Romulus, on which each was saluted king by his own followers, the former claiming the kingdom on the ground of the priority of time, the latter on that of the number of the birds. On their meeting, an altercation ensued, then blows, and their passions being inflamed by the dispute, the affair proceeded at last to extremity, and murder was the consequence. Remus fell by a blow received in the tumult. There is another account, more generally received, that Remus, in derision of his brother, leaped over the new wall, and that Romulus, enraged thereat, slew him, uttering at the same time this imprecation, So perish every one that shall hereafter leap over my wall. By these means, Romulus came into the sole possession of the government, and the city, when built, 
was called after the name of its founder. The first buildings which he raised were on the Palatine Hill, where he himself had been brought up. To the other deities he performed worship, according to the mode of the Albans, but to Hercules, according to that of the Greeks, as instituted by Evander. It is recorded that Hercules, after having slain Gerion, drove away his cattle, which were surprisingly beautiful, and that, being fatigued with traveling, he lay down near the river Tiber, in a grassy place, to which he had swum over, driving the herd before him, in order to refresh the cattle with rest and the rich pasture. There, having indulged himself in meat and wine, he was overpowered by sleep, whereupon a shepherd, who dwelt in the neighborhood, named Caucus, of great strength and fierceness, being struck with the beauty of the cattle, wished to make prey of some of them. But considering that, if he should drive the herd before him into his cave, their tracks would direct the owner's search, he dragged the cattle backward by the tails into the cave, picking out those that were the most remarkable for their beauty. Hercules, awaking at the dawn of day, took a view of his herd, and missing some of the number, went directly to the next cave, to examine whether the footsteps led thither. But when he observed that they all pointed outward, and yet did not direct to any other quarter, perplexed, and not knowing how to act, he began to drive forward his herd from that unlucky place. Some of the cows, as they were driven off, missing those that were left behind, began, as was natural, to low after them, and the sound being returned from the cave by those that were shut up in it, brought Hercules back. Cacus, endeavoring by force to prevent his approach to the cave, and invoking in vain the assistance of the shepherds, received a blow of his club, which put an end to his life. At that time, Evander, a native of Peloponnesus, who had removed hither, governed that part of the country, rather through an influence acquired by his merit than any power of sovereignty vested in him. He was highly revered on account of his having introduced the wonderful knowledge of letters, a matter quite new to these men, who were ignorant of all the arts, and still more so on account of the supposed divinity of his mother, Carmenta, whose prophetic powers had been an object of admiration to those nations before the arrival of the Sibyl in Italy. Evander, then, being alarmed by the concourse of the shepherds, hastened to the spot where they were assembled in a tumultuous manner about the stranger whom they accused as undeniably guilty of murder. And when he was informed of the fact and of the cause of it, observing the person and mien of the hero, filled with more dignity and majesty than belonged to a human being, he inquired who he was, and being told his name, that of his father and his country, he addressed him in these words, Hail Hercules, son of Jove! My mother, the infallible interpreter of the gods, foretold to me that you were destined to increase the number of the celestials, and that an altar would be dedicated to you in this place, which a nation hereafter the most powerful in the world should distinguish by the name of the greatest, and would offer thereon sacrifices to your honor. Hercules, giving his right hand, replied that he embraced the omen, and would fulfill the decree of the fates by building and dedicating an altar in the place. There, then, for the first time, was performed a sacrifice to Hercules, of a chosen heifer taken out of the herd, 
and the Potitii and the Pinarii, the most distinguished families in the neighborhood at the time, were invited to assist in the ceremonies and share the entertainment. It happened that the Potitii attended in time, and the entrails were served up to them. The Pinarii, arriving after the entrails were eaten, came in for the rest of the feast. Hence, it continued a rule, as long as the Pinarian family existed, that they should not eat of the entrails. The Potitii, instructed by Evander, were directors of that solemnity for many ages, until the solemn office of the family was delegated to public servants, on which the whole race of the Potitii became extinct. These were the only foreign rites that Romulus then adopted, showing thereby, from the beginning, a respect for immortality obtained by merit, a dignity to which his own destiny was conducting him. End of Book One, Part One